Good morning, friends. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in the words of a hymn writer, by the power of your spirit, make the book live to us. Show us yourself within your word. Show us ourselves. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As my dear friend and colleague, uh, Paulos said, uh, today we come to Psalm 19, part of our journey through the Psalm, a Psalm that is uh, well known by its final verse, which is a prayer that is, uh, as ever, on the lips of uh, many preachers, even this morning, across the world, particularly those who are familiar with the Presbyterian uh, circle. And not only of that, even when we gathered um, in the vestry or the office there before joining everyone, Ruby prayed uh, that prayer. And this prayer normally is being said time and again before delivering a sermon. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. I want this prayer to be not only on the lips of every preacher, but on our own lips as well. And not only today, but too often as we journey with the Lord. And I would like us to focus on these verse, words and others within this prayer that is found in those last three verses of this psalm. As what the psalmist does by way of a true and heart-searching response to two spheres of God's glorious revelation. But before we get that, I think it is important that we make at least two important observations. Number one, it is an observation that is related to the reference to the name of God. When you look at verse 1 and verse 6, which speak of the silent and yet powerful cosmos preaching that goes on repeatedly, those verses refer to God just once and use the name God. So I think you have your Bible open, so you need to have your Bible open. To, to get what I'm trying to say. And there's no slide, by the way. So you better go to the Bible um, or look at your phone and be able to see this. So you can see there that the name of God is only referred once from verse 1 all the way to verse 6. 
but also it uses the name God in the generic uh, name or term God. Um, some of the people who are so learned here, they know that uh, this name is associated with uh, uh, power, strength. In other words, the God that speaks in these first six verses there, or the God that is referred there, is as we have sung in the song, is the stronger one. Our God is stronger. But the one who is much greater than the creation. And often view as one who is at a distance. And this name gives often little or no indication of the character of God, rather than saying he's a stronger one and most powerful. And yet when we come to verse 7 and 8, which speak of something about the words of God and their function in our lives, those verses refer to God six times, but this time by using his revealed name, the Lord, all capital or Yahweh. And this is important because this name, where, this is the name where he is known um, in his covenant love. By the way, the first one, God only, which we found in verse one, that names uh, just appear almost like 250 times, but this one here is over 7,000 times in the Bible. And there's something going on there. It's the name where God has revealed himself as his covenant love and saving grace. The God who is not a distant one, but one who draws near and disturbs. The one who loves to be near his people. He is a sociable God. He is awesome, but not stuffy, as we can say. The one who comes to offer friendship, the one who is present among his people, bringing them out from under their yoke, freeing them from being a slave, the one who takes them as his own people and become their God. This is the God that speaks there. In other words, when we look at these verses 7 to 9, it seems to imply that the Lord has drawn near to us in his word. He has drawn near to us in his word. In the creation, he seems to be distant, but in his word, he has drawn near to us. And we living as we do in post John 1, so to speak, time, we know that uh, when we read the word became flesh in John chapter 1 verse 14, we know that our God is not uh, aloof, our God is not distant, is not, uh, interested, uh, is not interested in us, is not friendly. Our God uh, is uh, with us, among us, uh, uh, among his people. Indeed, Jesus said, as part to encourage his disciple, um, I quote, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love 
him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So our God is close and he comes to us in the scripture. The same you hear also in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 3 verse 20. Here I stand, says the Lord, I am the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with him and him with me. As we've been looking at eating with God. Our God is near. Now, there is a few implications here when we look at what we see in creation and what we look at the scripture here. Perhaps it's fair to say you cannot know God's saving grace through nature, but only in and through the word of salvation. And this is important, particularly in these days when paganism is on the rise, and sometimes even in the church, sadly, when worshiping creation rather than the creator is becoming something on the rise. But what we see here is that God has come near to us in the world. Of course, when we look at nature, when we look at creation, we can deduce that God is great. He has created all this. But that knowledge does not of itself save us. That's what we hear Paul talking to a group of people in Acts chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. That even though God has revealed his kind to us in nature, we see all these Yet that knowledge, nowhere it has been said to be a knowledge that is able to bring people to salvation. But something else that is true, that failure to respond to that knowledge of God revealed in creation incurs responsibilities and make people without excuse. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 to 20 says that. That's why in the past, when this young guy, I was talking to the student this week, John Calvin, look at the truth, truly. And is this what you hear in the New Testament? Jesus saying to the Samaritan, you do not know who you worship. We know who we worship. And that's why the Father is seeking those who worship the Lord in truth and spirit. Perhaps the perfect example is the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. You remember, they have seen the stars, the star, and they are being guided. And the star is a messenger being guided. And they come to a place where they are consulting the scripture or the hearing feedback from the scripture. But even there, the picture one gets is it is a journey. Yet, 
The creation does something. The scripture is there. But even some of those who knew the scripture were not even moved to worship until when they came and found Jesus were here. Then they worship. Jesus is at the center. Friends, what saves and makes one to truly worship is a personal relationship with the Lord so that our God becomes our Father and Jesus our Redeemer. It's only then that what we see in creation and what we read in the scripture does much good to us. And that leads us to the second observation is the response that the psalmist gave. But uh, notice, this response is not placed after God's revelation in creation, but immediately after God's revelation through the word. I was struck by that. Okay, some people would say well, they must have arranged that, but uh, even if they did so, they should have put maybe verse 11 all the way to verse 14, which is the response, after verse 6. But no, they put it after the scripture, which, which tells us the importance of God's word. And that's why preaching is a supreme importance. Because in preaching, the inner work of the Holy Spirit, who is the divine author, works through his word to enable us to hear the living voice that speaks through the scripture. Preaching lies at the heart of our Christian worship. It's like you cannot properly or truly worship God except in the context of hearing the scripture. It's like that what you see there. I, I, my, one of my favorite uh, time um, uh, passage in, in, in the Old Testament that uh, drawn us to worship is Psalm 95 when we hear, come and let's sing joyfully to the Lord. Come and let's bow down before God, our maker. And we are called to worship. And then immediately what we hear there, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You can see worship and the word of God goes hand in hand. And so the aim is here that after the text is proclaimed, we encounter the living God, God himself, in a life-changing way. Why? Because the scripture is there and in its perfection and penetrates and examines our heart. As the pastor to the Hebrew in the New Testament tells us that for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thought and the attitude of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered 
and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give an account. How does David respond to the scrutiny of God's word, which he loves and he listens to as God's servant, cheering it as a valuable sources of warning, but also following as it is a trustworthy guide that leads to greater reward? How does he respond? And let's see that this response is not only David, but is the sort of response that God is calling us and looking for us to do as we come to the scripture. That takes us to that prayer that David does. First of all, he sees himself as a great sinner. In, to the scrutiny of the word, in the mirror of God's word, he sees himself as a great sinner who is in need of God's grace to be acquitted from his guilt and to be pers per per pre preserved from deliberate sin, but also is longing to live a blameless life before God. In other words, when the voice of God speaks in the word, he is convicted of sin in all its form. And therefore, his hands are up and say, I stand guilty before this God. And I need grace. That's why he goes immediately. Look at it. The progression is incredible. He looked at his errors, his hidden fault, his willful sin, his great transgression. My, my, my. Perhaps here he was thinking his own sins that he committed, the sins of affairs, and even arranged to have the husband of the one now he has committed this sin to be murdered. Maybe he's thinking about that. Why is he going to this detail about his sin? Because as one commentator say, no good person with tolerable degree of knowledge of themselves can be ignorant of the fact that they come far short of the absolute perfection required by God's word. He humbly asked for grace, grace that is greater than our sins. Lord, forgive me. As you listen to this, perhaps God is convicting you of your hidden sins. Think about something that only you know your wife, your husband, that's no, but God knows. The things that your girlfriend, your boyfriend doesn't know, but God knows. The things that your parents or your children do not know, but God knows. The things that your pastors, your elders, your deacons, and your congregation doesn't know, but God knows. The things that your employee, your employer do not know, but God knows. The things that your neighbor, 
Neighbors do not know, but God knows. The things that your colleagues, your students, your roommate do not know, but God knows. And if perhaps God is convicting you with that, then let me say you stand guilty before him. And would you then confess them and seek for forgiveness? But remember, that any sin that remains unconfessed, even if it was committed ignorantly, will grow within the heart and become and begin to rule over our lives. And this can lead to committing greater sin. I don't have time to go what he means by greater sin. But David knows also the joy that comes with forgiveness. Blessed is he or she whose transgression are forgiven, whose sins are covered. And when the Lord forgives, he remembers the sins no more. Not only he knows that he's a great sinner, but he goes to make a humble prayer. The Lord let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. Let me just say a few things here. It is a pity, friend, that these days we are so much into, into what I call here um, gratification or self-gratification, uh, uh, into affirmation, into seeking uh, uh, people's approval into much making ourselves feeling good uh, as a result of taking time to do something. But the thought of us being brought to our knees before the Lord is becoming less appealing. But there is uh, this great transformation and joy and beauty when we are on our knees there with a contrite heart, a broken spirit, because the Lord has convicted us and crying to our Redeemer, and by his grace we arise from there as a changed people. The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, let them be pleasing to you. I googled it, tried to find the how many words an average person can speak on a day? And what I got, a mixture of responses. One say 7,000 words. The other say 6,000 words. Now, let's just say between five to seven. That's quite a lot of words. And those who teach, those who speak, I'm sure more than that. Now, there's a lot of talking are these words in line and they reflect the heart of the Redeemer or our rock? Now, you may say, well, I don't speak like others who can speak for the whole Scotland, whole of Scotland, but what about uh, what is in your heart? The thought there. But what David here is saying, this thought and my words, my words, which actually what I speak will come out of the meditation. 
Let them be to you as an offering that is acceptable. So when we come to the service on a Sunday, not only we bring our offering like what we did, but our words, our heart should be brought before him as an offering that is acceptable. And I find that challenging. I have to admit, because I've been on the giving and on the receiving words sometimes that just crush people's spirit. But he knows this, finally. And not only is he a great sinner, but he has also a great savior. Whom he call here, my rock and my redeemer. Friends, that is actually the foundation and the basis of his prayer. The foundation and the reason of his prayer. He knows that uh, I can go to him and again look at the final verse. The name that is used there, not God, but the Lord, the one who is gracious, compassionate, loving, friend, the one we look before. He's the one is saying, I can bring this as an offering to you. I know not based, it will not be acceptable based on my own, but it is only on account of who you are. What an encouragement it is to know that not only we are a great sinner, but we have a great savior. The one, I don't want to go in detail, but the one who is our rock, who keeps us safe. But the one who is also our redeemer, who takes us out of sin, who free us from slavery of sin, who free us from uh, any kind of things that distress us. And the one who gives us the right to stand in freedom to serve the true and the living God. And as our redeemer, finally, not only he redeemed us at the cross where he died, but today we stand as redeemed people. Even when sin is still working in our heart, one day at the resurrection, we will be set totally free. I wonder, he brings his prayer to this God who is our rock. And our Redeemer, because he's the one, he knows, I can stand before him. Though I am a sinner, but you come to him, I am forgiven. He gives me again and again the strength 
go to run the race until that day. May this prayer be not only on the lips of a preacher or on the lips of David himself, but on each one of us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Can you say that, that the Lord is your rock, your redeemer? You can only say that if you have placed your faith in him. To him be the glory. Amen.